If you would, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's, uh, let's once again bow in prayer. Father, as always, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless us as we worship you here this morning. We thank you, Father, again for your word. We thank you, Father, for all that we learn from your word. Everything, Father, we need for life and godliness. Everything, we, Father, we need to bring to us great joy. Everything we need, Father, to bring to us comfort. Everything we need for every circumstance of life is here in your word, and for that we are so grateful. And so, Father, we ask that as we continue to read and to study the Lord, that you would open up its truths to us, that, Father, you would enable us, Father, to comprehend those things that are here, that, Father, we would be able to meditate on them for a long time, that we would allow them to germinate in our minds and that they would begin to fill our minds and our hearts with the truth of all that you've given us. And so, Father, as always, we are grateful that you've given to us your word and you've given us, Father, this opportunity to focus on your word. So we do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul, <clears throat> Paul writes, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What I'm hoping that you'll be able to do, in fact you'll be able to do now, that we have spent several weeks on this passage, that when you come across this passage that you'll begin to think in particular ways. In other words, you will understand that the message of the cross is foolishness only to those who are lost to those who are refusing to believe in Christ. But why does it sound like foolishness to them? Well, the reason why it sounds like foolishness to them is is not only because man is blinded by his sin, but because of what God has given to us here in verse 19. God says he's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. When he says that, he's not talking about destroying things that we know that are actually true. What he's talking about is the wisdom that men have as they try to think about life and think about every aspect of life, all the while seeking to exclude God. That while they're trying to exclude God from their thinking, and therefore thinking that they are wise and whatever they're thinking about, God has destroyed that. He has made that absolute foolishness. And their understanding or what they think is their understanding of life has come to absolutely nothing. So then once again, when it comes to looking at life, man then trying to figure out life, where life came from, what life means, but doing so with the presupposition that there is no God, there is no creator God, there's no God of the Bible, there's no God at all, 
man then looks at all this and begins to think in different kinds of ways. And we've seen that. Man may begin to think that everything is relative. Of course, man knows that it's not. Everything is not relative. Uh, man, man is inconsistent with what he thinks to be true. Even though that one statement, that all things are relative, that's not a relative statement. But when it comes to, again, someone building your house or building a bridge, we don't have engineers who think that truth is relative. They believe in absolutes. So what man has done through the years to try to uh, live with his own um, inconsistencies is man is divided truth up. And so what man has said is that, well, when it comes to like building a house, when it comes to perhaps doing science, when it comes to looking at the truth of history, uh, those things are, are true truths. Those are brute facts. Those are things that you can't change. But when it comes to religious things, when it comes to spiritual things, well, that's up for grabs. There is no absolute truth in that. And so man has divided uh, truth up. And if you read Francis Schaeffer, he talks about a two-story house. And you have the downstairs, and that's where all real facts are. And upstairs is where you have mythology, where you have opinion, and you have religion. And so that's how man lives with himself. Uh, you have individuals today who are materialists, who say that they only believe in things that are material, that, that if it's in the material world, then you can trust it, you can, you can take it, you can experiment on it, you can understand it, and those things are real. That's what you can grab onto. But when it comes to that, just think about this. If you have ever taken a math class, class actually, if you live in this country, you've heard this your whole life, that there happens to be an infinite number of numbers. No one sees that. Nobody is looking at the material world and recognizing, oh, look, there's infinite numbers over there. It's all, in a sense, spiritual. We all think that. And as a result, things cannot just be materialistic. There cannot be just a materialistic view of life. That is an impossibility. The moment man begins to think about things that he cannot see, but things that he knows that are real, he's already destroyed the foundation for what he says is true. Uh, I once read a, a, a biography of Einstein, and there were two words that kept repeating themselves throughout the entire book about his life. It's what he often engaged in, and what he called it was, was a thought experiment. Where he just would begin to think about things. Think about things in his mind. He wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't doing any experiments in his lab. He wasn't writing these things out. He was just thinking all of these things. And as he, as he tried these different thought experiments, he would come up with various answers to the various problems that he was thinking about. Why is he able to do that? Why is anyone able to do that? We're able to do that because we are created in the image of God. God is able to do that. God is what is necessary for you and I to begin to think things through. When you wake up on a Saturday morning and you realize or you think that you, you want to work in your yard and you want to landscape your yard, well, what we often do is you think about it. What am I going to do first? What am I going to do second? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? Oh, I want to do this, but I don't know how to do that, so I'm going to look this up on the Internet to figure out how to do that. You think all those things. Be able to do all those things because we've been created in the image of God. God is the necessary element. He is the necessary thing that, it, that must be there for us to be able to think that way. And that's the kinds of things that we've been talking about, which then means then that when it comes to the gospel of Christ, the reason why the gospel of Jesus Christ makes sense to us is because it is logical. It is rational. God is answering all of these very difficult questions. The very difficult questions is how is it that a sinful man can be reconciled to God when the penalty for man's sin is death? How is that possible? 
How can God show mercy yet still be just? The gospel answers all of those questions. So we are able then with a logical mind, with a rational mind, to understand the gospel. But for those who want to presuppose that they're living their life without God, or that God doesn't exist, that just sounds like foolishness to them. They can't figure that out. And so what we need to recognize, hopefully what we begin to see here, is that this passage that we see here in the book of 1 Corinthians is just filled with many different kinds of meanings. That God has truly done this. That from the very beginning, what we all possess, the ability to think logically, the ability to evaluate what someone says logically, to be able to figure out what is true and what is false, has been given to us by God. God has created the world that way. That's what he has instilled in us, in his creation. And as a result of that, we're able to understand truth. We're able to comprehend things. And that's why man is able to do incredible things. Whether it's in the field of mathematics or science or medicine or engineering, the things that we can figure out are amazing. Why are we able to do that? Because we can think in this way, in the way that God has created us. So again, we all believe that factually, that even though infinite numbers do not physically exist, they do exist. And again, we're able to account for that because the worldview that we possess as believers is made possible because of God himself. The Christian worldview uh, is the only worldview where an infinite God can justify the truth of infinite numbers. I'm going to bring this a little closer to home. Many atheists will attempt to label religious faith primarily Christianity, but some may say that it's just religious faith, and say that your religious faith is a crutch. And where that kind of comes from is there's this old idea that before the Middle Ages, because man didn't know much scientifically, and man was very much afraid of natural phenomenon, various types of weather events and different things, that man was terrified of those things, and man was trying to figure out a way to explain those things so that he would not be as afraid, so that he would be able maybe to explain it to his children. So when it came to earthquakes, or when it came to tornadoes or hurricanes, or whatever it happened to be, there's the God, you know, the sun God, the God of the wind, the God of the earth, and just all of these different kinds of superstitious things that men or that mankind came up with to try to explain these things. And the theory is, is that as man became more advanced in technology, he was able to realize that maybe these stories he had heard all his life were phony, that they were fake, that they were just said to appease the fears of individuals. And so as man has matured and grown, he, he no longer needs these things. And most of these stories, if not a very high majority of them, all came from the religious realm. And that in the religious realm, we're, trying to talk, we're saying that God is the cause of all of these things, but now we know he's not the cause of these things. It's because the weather pattern moves in this way, and because the temperature rises here, and because we have this cold front meeting with this warm front, we have this phenomenon, and we have that phenomenon. See, we don't have to say that God is the cause of all of these things. And what we also have recognized is that through the years, through all of these superstitious religious kind of explanations that are given, what man has done, these individuals who are self-appointed priests, have used their knowledge maybe of some of these phenomenon and they have used it to take advantage of the people and to exploit them and so now we have moved way beyond that and we no longer need those things because we now have science we now have technology well you do a little bit of reading and you realize that oh that's not true there is some truth to that 
There were at times in the past where pagan religions came up with all these weird ideas to try to explain things. That's true. But as man has advanced in his technology, man does recognize some of the foolishness of those things. But you don't have those kinds of stories in Christianity. You don't have superstitious types of things in Christianity. What we teach, what we believe, is that yes, God did create all of what we call the laws of nature as we identify the way things work. All these things came from a brilliant God who created the world to function in a particular way. And these things that we see act consistently. And that's because that's how God has created it. God is stable. God is constant. He is consistent. And so because he exists, I can understand science. And I can explain these things. So science then is not the natural substitute for superstitious religion. In fact, science becomes foundational for real, uh, Christianity becomes foundational for real science to be done. And so there's some truth to that, but the idea again of these superstitious stories that was exaggerated to cover all of religion so you can throw it all away, but that's not what history bears out. So with that kind of theory in mind, people then can kind of continue that myth and they say, well, what happens is, is we just believe that your Christianity is, is just a crutch. In fact, the reason why you believe in Christianity is because you're afraid of death. And God is a protection for you to not be afraid of death. It, it helps, you, helps to comfort you in your time of fear. Now, the claim that Jesus is a crutch in one sense is true. Maybe we should take it a little further. Jesus is not just my crutch. He's my wheelchair. Without his grace, without his strength... Uh, I would not be able to live a full and healthy life. In fact, maybe it's the other way around. It's the atheist who rejects God out of fear. They know that hell exists. They are afraid of its reality. And so what do they do? They convince themselves that God doesn't exist, which sounds like great foolishness. An individual doesn't know how to swim. You take them to the ocean. They go, oh, I want to jump in. You go, oh, I don't think you want to do that. Oh, it'd be okay. No, that's a real ocean out there. There are real waves, real, that's, that's foolishness. They know that hell exists, and so what do they do? Oh, God doesn't exist, so somehow hell doesn't exist. They do this for the comfort of their minds. God's non-existence is a projection of their minds because of fear. And so they actively suppress the truth of God in their mind. So what we need to keep in mind, this is very important for us to do, because we sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we fail to do this as believers. When the word of God which is throughout the Bible, explains to us how things are and how people are. The Bible is always true, period. So once again, when it comes to your non-believing children, when it comes to your non-believing friends, the Bible tells us clearly they know that God exists. They know that. They may claim to be an atheist, they're just seeking to fool themselves. It may be out of fear. It could be all, for all kinds of reasons. Normally, I think the main reason is people just don't want there to be anyone or anything which includes God telling them what they need to do. We don't want to be accountable. Not really. We want to be free from all of that. And so what we, what we are sick and tired of, supposedly, is there's always someone who's holier than thou that wants to tell me what to do. Now, it's true, we get tired of people who act holier than thou that want to tell us what to do with their own man-made rules, but that is not describing God. God has given us these rules. God has given us these laws so that our lives can flourish, 
so that we can enjoy his creation, so we can enjoy all those things he's given to us that we possess, whether it's our own gifts and abilities or the planet that we live on. God is, uh, the relationships that we have with each other. God has given us laws about these things so that we can enjoy these relationships, so that we would not exploit each other, so that we would not be miserable creatures all the time. And so that's why man is doing these things. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. You've heard us talk about this many, many times. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the main thing I usually want to pick on there is, again, you remember there's two words used there, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Those are not two words repeating the same kind of behavior. Unrighteousness is the wrong things we do. Beat someone up, steal from them, kill an individual, uh, lie to them. Those are unrighteous acts. But what is ungodliness? Because we often say as Christians, which would be true, that the non-believer sins 24 hours a day. There is never a moment in time that a non-believer is not living in sin. And that's because of ungodliness. Ungodliness is living your life as if God does not exist. Or living your life as if God is somehow unimportant. That is sinful. Why? Because God is the one who has created us. All things exist by him. All things are sustained by him. Because of who he is, by his very nature, and by the very nature of what we are, we owe him. We are obligated to worship him and to be grateful to him. So then to ignore him is sinful, and every moment that we are not placing ourselves in submission to Jesus Christ, that unbeliever then is what? Rejecting God, because there's no middle ground. And so that's why all have sinned. Even though we would say that some people do good things, we know normally an individual does things that are relatively good, because they're still doing it in unbelief. In fact, what they're declaring is, is they can do good without God. Yet God says that their good things or their good works are filthy rags. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So again, this is a blanket statement. It is intended to be a blanket statement. It is a statement that comes from God. All men suppress that truth. Every single one. Then he explains it even further. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. So it's not telling you that everything about God is manifest in them, but there are certain truths about God, the fact that he exists is the main one. They know that to be truth. They suppress that. In fact, God says, and this is how you know that we know that they know he exists, because God here has made it known, and God doesn't fail. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. God says here clearly that what be made known uh, uh, what is known about him is manifest in them. How is that true? How do we know that all men know this? Well, he, oh, he, he tells you, for God has shown it to them. So every single individual who's ever been born, ever will be born, is an individual who knows that God exists. And we know that's true because God says he has manifested that truth in them. He has taken that responsibility on upon himself. He hasn't left it up the chance for someone to discover it. Everyone knows this to be true. And they know this on the inside. He goes into a further explanation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. 
So even the individuals who claim to be, a, who are materialistic in their kind of outlook on life already know that that view is not true because there are invisible attributes of God that they know that exist. It tells us how we know they exist, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So God's invisible attributes are clearly seen and they are understood by the things that are made. That would include man. We are made and we understand them. God has given us a mind. We can figure these things out. In the same way that when, when, uh, if you're talking to your child about the wind, if you open the door on a breezy day and say, look at the wind, they don't see the wind. You can't see it. But you can see the trees moving. You can see the dirt blowing around. You can see the lawn chair being blown across the, uh, the, uh, the yard there. So we see the effects of the wind. They clearly can understand that the wind is doing that, though they can't see the wind. When it comes to the invisible attributes of God, they clearly know that God exists. Well, what is it that they understand about God? He tells us his eternal power, that God is powerful, and Godhead, that he is divine, that he should be worshipped. And that's why it adds, so they are without excuse. That is true for every single person. I don't know if you've ever done this before, um, I think it can be a good exercise. So one day when you're watching, let's say, whether it's your favorite TV program or some news program or what have you, uh, there's a pretty good chance that there's a large number of unbelievers on the screen. So while you're watching them, watching individuals who may be very talented, individuals who may be very intelligent, as you watch them, think about this. That individual, if they don't know, if they've not believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that person knows that God exists. And that person every day is suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And they do deserve to go to hell. Because they are rejecting the God of the universe. And they are doing it at this very moment. They did it last night. They do it with every day of their life. That's what they're doing. Remind yourself of these things. Because if we don't remind ourselves of these things, we end up being looking at the world, I guess, kind of almost through a relative kind of a lens. Where you've heard people say this before, let's say there's a troubled family, and let's say that uh, you're friends with, let's say, let's say you're friends with the husband or the father of the family, let's say he's kind of a rough character, and let's say for whatever the case may happen to be, you're talking to his son one day, and, and uh, his teenage son is just kind of depressed because of how things are at home, and you know how things are at home uh, in this family, and he says, I just, I just feel like running away because I don't think my dad loves me. And what we sometimes say, oh, your dad loves you. I mean, in his own way, he loves you. What does that mean, in his own way? Is that like between blows? He loves me in his own way when he's not cutting me down every day? Is he loving me when he's not speaking to me? What do you mean he loves me in his own way? What is that about? Because I watch you with your son, and that's not how you love your son. It's very clear and evident you love your son. My dad doesn't do those things. So what happens is we start trying to make excuses and then we do the same thing for people that we've known for years that we love. And they die. I say, well, I, I know they, they love God in their own way. Where is that in here? That we can love God our own way. You have an example of that in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. His name is called Cain. Cain wanted to worship God his own way. Now, there's certain things we're going to have to assume there, but I think we can assume them correctly because of how it's laid out in Scripture. But Cain and Abel came to worship God. They both knew that was the right thing to do. 
Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd. Abel brought the proper gift, which was a sacrifice. Some people try to make an excuse for Cain, say, well, Cain couldn't bring a sacrifice, he was a farmer. You know, there's a thing that we've been doing for a long time, you know, bartering and exchanging. I, I somehow, knowing Abel's character, I don't think that uh, uh, Cain would have, would have gone to Abel and said, I'll give you a bushel of, of corn for a lamb, and Abel would have said, no, nope, sorry, I'm not doing that. I, I don't think that would have happened. Cain had the ability, he had the means. And so Cain then brings of, of, of his offering, and some have tried to make excuses, well, it wasn't the best, or that's not in the scripture anywhere. God accepted the one, which was a blood sacrifice, he rejected the other. And then, of course, you know what happens is, is, is God rejects Cain and the offering. He rejects them both. Because, you know, he, the one that the offering comes from, he rejects him. It's very politically incorrect, but it's accurate. And, of course, God comes to Cain and speaks to him. And this is what he says. If you do what's right, it'll be well with you. No explanation is given as to what is right. Which means God is assumed there that Cain knows what to do. And when God makes an assumption, he's always correct. Do what's right. It'll be well with you. But if you don't do what's right, if you don't do what's right, sin lies at the door. And when he goes on to explain there, when you look it up in the Hebrew language, it talks about this crouching lion. The idea is, is that sin wants to dominate your life. And it's ready to spring. And if you don't do what's right, that's going to happen. And I think in, in Genesis 4, I think it's verse, that's, that's verse 7 and 8 is where, that is, is where he finishes making that statement to Cain. And then before verse 8 begins, I tell people that I want them to look at the period after verse 7 and before the first word of verse 8 and tell me what's there. Well, there's nothing. That's blank. That's exactly what Cain did. Nothing. And as a result, what happened? Sin dominated his life. He submitted to sin, and he killed his brother. He murdered him. And if you've heard me preach on 1 John, you know that I believe that uh, Cain slit Abel's throat. He didn't hit him with a rock in the head. He slit his throat. And that's because in 1 John, uh, uh, when it talks about Cain murdering his brother, the word that's used there in the Greek language, there's 11 different words for kill. And the word that's used there is the Greek word spazo, S-P-A-Z-O, and that word is used only uh, uh, in Greek literature in the Bible. It's only used for a, a blood sacrifice, which is always the slicing of the ear, I mean slicing of the neck from one ear across the neck to the other. That is the specific word that is used there by John to describe how Cain killed Abel. So that it wasn't an accident, it wasn't an oops, it wasn't they got into an argument and Cain pushed him and Abel fell down and hit his head on a stone. It wasn't, no, it wasn't that. It wasn't manslaughter in that sense. It was murder. In fact, I, I believe it was an act of rebellion to God. It was, it was the, it was the uh, climax of it. It's basically he was saying, God, you want a sacrifice? I'll give you a sacrifice. And he slit his brother's throat. It's what happens. So what we see going on in the lives of these individuals as they live their lives, as they mock Christianity, is sin's been lying at the door, crouching at the door, waiting for them. And they have been rejecting the gospel all these years, rejecting what they know to be true about God. They've been rejecting that, and they live the way they live. 
And so again, after he says that they are without excuse, verse 21 of Romans 1 says, because although they knew God, he repeats it for us so that we understand that man knows this. This is not that man has a pretty good idea. He knows this. Although they knew God, they what? They made a choice and they refused to worship him. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. And then it begins to happen. They become futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then they begin to profess to be wise, and they became fools, which I believe in the Greek language is where we get our word moron from. So professing to be wise, they became morons. So the only people that you should logically call morons are non-believers, though I'm not saying that you should do that. But don't ever call a believer a moron because that would be inaccurate. And what did man do? He changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like a, like, made like corruptible man. And then verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So to summarize these things very quickly, first of all, all people everywhere have a rudimentary knowledge of God as creator. They know that. Number two, the knowledge of God as creator is acquired by rational reflection on created effects. You look at nature, you know that God exists. That's what the scripture says. Thirdly, the sinful heart consistently suppresses the knowledge that is derived from nature of God as creator. That is what all non-believers are doing all of the time. That's why we pray that God would open their eyes. We pray that God would touch their hearts. We pray that God would touch their minds. They would hear the gospel. They would listen to the gospel. That God would convict them of sin. Because they will not be convicted on their own. It's not going to happen. Because they consistently suppress what they know to be true about God and his existence and his wrath about ungodliness and unrighteousness. And fourthly, again, Humanity's deliberate repudiation of the light of the knowledge of God establishes human guilt. Man is truly guilty of these things. In addition to all of this, remember that man again is continually suppressing the truth. What is known about God, his invisible qualities, the fact that he is and that he is eternally powerful, that continues to happen throughout their life. Number two, the fact that God is and that he is eternally powerful is understood through the things that are made. So people see with the eye the invisible qualities of God through his visible creation and rationally process the information to arrive at an understanding that God ensures, to, to, that it ensures is clear to them. So again, there, there's no mudding of the waters here. There is an attempt by them to muddy the waters, but it's clear to them. So remember that mankind is never neutral and mankind is never neutral uh, or a neutral observer of God's revelation. Although people really do know God, again, they suppress this truth in an unrighteous manner so that they are again defenseless before the bar of God's justice. Some claim that the knowledge of God is lost through constant suppression. I don't believe that. Uh, if, you, if you read some of Sproul or Gerstner and some others, they were right, and it sounds good to begin with. They'll say, because of sin, the capacity to recognize the signs of divinity in nature has been lost. The evidence for God's existence and majesty are available in nature, but unbelievers are totally blind to it. The evidence is objectively adequate, but not subjectively appropriated. Well, I believe that's not true, and here's why. Number one, again, when you look at Romans 1, Again, Paul is presenting that the knowledge of God as being constant action. In other words, God's revelation is constantly being given to men that he exists. 
It's not, a, it's not where it happens for a while and the man suppresses it and the man somehow loses it. Man never loses it. Uh, when you look at a, I look at a couple of commentaries that focus on the Greek language uh, dealing with this passage in Romans. And let me read to you a couple of things. The revelation of God's wrath, which is now in constant progress. Despite all denials of God's hatred of sin or even of God's very existence, his wrath is constantly being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is the one who's doing the revealing. This revelation of the wrath occurs in an endless succession. Man's moral nature is perceiving God's stern opposition in every punishment of sin. This fact of the wrath from heaven constantly breaks through the clouds of human perversions, false reasonings, and philosophies, blatant denials and lies, beneath which men seek, seek to hide in helpless efforts to escape. So again, that's why when you hear of these microbiologists like Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, who are continually writing books and going around advocating this idea that we need to deny God, that God doesn't exist, that you're brainwashing your children if you teach them about God. Why is he continuously doing that? Because it is constantly shouting at him that God exists and he hates sin and he's trying to drown that out. And he's also committing the sin of being pernicious. Remember what being pernicious is? Pernicious is, is where you're trying to infect others to bring down as many as you can with you. In other words, you're not satisfied with your own damnation. You want to bring down many others. You want to corrupt others just because you want to corrupt them. And that's what's going on. The revelation of God is by no means hazy. It is not indistinct, and therefore it is never useless. Of course, the other question that could be asked about those who believe that somehow we can lose this knowledge of God is how does that happen? Because in Romans 1, the claims that this knowledge is poured out through the created order, which is always in existence before us. We are constantly being bombarded with evidences for God's existence, his power, and his eternality. It is true that since we are conceived in sin, our rejection of this knowledge must begin at the moment of birth. But the knowledge of God is constantly being pressed home from the world around us. All these things we've been talking about over the past several weeks, I believe it is actually really pretty simple, and even kids can understand it. In fact, when it comes to these things, I want to read you a, a little story about uh, a little radio show that a guy heard one time, a very smart man, but he was listening to uh, an interview. And uh, let me just kind of uh, begin to uh, read, read you how the story begins. The story begins, I can only kind of jump in the middle, where the individual says this, uh, where in this continuous cycle can one say, here there is knowledge and here there is not? If the knowledge of God is clearly seen and understood, then it must be clearly seen and understood throughout one's lifetime. So as to the question of the existence of God, the argument can be reduced to two basic assertions. A, or number one, that human beings are obligated to presuppose God in all of their thinking. And number two, that unbelievers resist this obligation in every aspect of thought and life. In other words, the unbeliever already knows of the existence, not just of a God, but of the Christian God, the triune God of the Bible. The use of evidence is not to prove the reality of God, but merely to bring to the consciousness what the unbeliever already knows to be true. So during a podcast in 2014, a man named Chris Newswanger was, uh, was interviewing a, a presuppositional apologist. Toward the end of the interview, the individual explained that even his kids get this stuff. And he, and he gave a story. The example that he gave was a story... Um, from a, a man named Eric. Uh, his name is Eric Hoven. That's the son of Ken Hoven. Some of you know who Ken Hoven is. And he said this, Over breakfast one morning with his young daughter, 
after he had been arguing with people the day before about uh, who had denied the knowledge of God. Anyway, when he was having breakfast with his young daughter, he had warned her that there were people out there who say they cannot know anything. Eric's daughter said this. Well, how do they know that? Eric retorted, where were you yesterday morning? I could have used you then. And then he explained to Chris that kids get this, and it's easy. Well, a man was listening to that podcast. At that moment, while driving and hearing that, he pulled his car over to the side because he just had to find out immediately if this was true. And so he texted his 10-year-old daughter, whose name is Emily. And this is the exchange. Dad writes, There are people in this world who think you cannot know anything. What are your thoughts on this? Emily says, I don't know. Dad's, dad presses. Well, what would you say to such a person? Well, um, I've been to school, so I know stuff. Then the dad says, so was that a true statement? Emily says, well, of course. Then dad says, no, 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 no. Is this a true statement? Um, you know, that we can't know anything. Hey, Emily, I can't know anything. Is that a true statement? She goes, no, that's not true. He goes, very good. Why not? She says, well, you are asking me something so you know how to talk. So the dad says, wow, that's excellent. He says, okay, well, here's a tough one. How do we know anything? She says, because God made us know something. Dad says, wow, that's excellent again. You are nailing it. Is it possible to know anything without God? No. Oh, correct. Why not? Because he's God. And so he says, amen, sweetheart. I know I've taught you Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And I just want to remind you that when it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that is not that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of only spiritual knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, period. Fools despise wisdom and destruction. So Emily says, I know that, Dad. Dad says, you are not a fool. Emily says, I know. Then Dad says, how do you know? Then she says, LOL, laugh out loud, you just told me. Then dad says, well, tell me in your words. So she says, because the Bible says I'm not a fool. Then the dad says, well, some people are fools and some people are not fools. Why are you not a fool? And she says, because I'm a believer. And he says, amen, sweetheart. And then he gets back on the road. And what he says is kids get it. They understand that. They have to go to school to unlearn all of that and begin to think in the ways that we've talked about for the past several weeks. That's why it's so important that we talk to our children about the Bible and about Christ and about the way the Bible is presented to us. You, without knowing it, you are speaking to them logically and rationally all the time. You are helping them to understand that without God, we can know nothing. It's more than just salvation. Salvation is important, but it's everything. We don't want to somehow shrink our religion to being nothing more than just the bare minimum about the gospel itself. That is central in every way. But we have all of life to live and enjoy, which has been given to us by God. And we're able to live life and enjoy life because of what Christ has done. He fixed what was broken with the entire world, sin. What's broken in every man is sin. And once that has been restored, once that's been fixed and addressed, then we can, more so than the rest of the world, enjoy our families. We can enjoy each other's company. We're not destroyed because somebody betrays us. Oh, it hurts, but our life is not destroyed because we know who we are in Christ. If others cut us down continuously, we are not destroyed because we know who we are in Christ because I know I am loved by God himself. 
and I belong to him. And so because of that, I can face, you can face literally anything, including death. Because it's not an unknown quantity. We know. We know the truth about death and life. And too many of us as believers, we live our lives like the non-believers. And we need to stop doing that. My encouragement to you is to enjoy the life that God has given you to the fullest. And ask God to use it in the lives of others so that perhaps one day somebody will say, why is it you're just always in a good mood? You know what I'm going to say? Please don't say, I was born that way. Explain to them, because I know who I am in Christ. That is not the answer they were expecting. And they might suddenly get a phone call and have to leave. But it may also begin to prompt them to begin to think and maybe watch you much more closely so that we can share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to stop keeping it to ourselves. And sometimes what happens in keeping it to ourselves, we almost end up keeping it from ourselves because we end up living miserable lives ourselves, complaining all the time, looking at the glasses always being half empty. It is half full because it doesn't deserve to have anything in it. And so we should be grateful because God is so good. And again, I want to encourage you this morning that if you are unable to look at life that way, if you are still one of those who is pulled aside into thinking that, that somehow knowledge is relative or, or somehow that, that, no, I believe that the materialistic way of looking at, at, at life is, is true, I want to encourage you to go back to the Word of God and read it for yourself. You realize that you are just living in a world that you cannot live in consistently. It doesn't make sense. It is illogical in every way. And really and truly the only logical way to be able to love life is to look at what the God has said and look at the gospel itself and realize that it is an, an incredible, marvelous, intricate, complicated, yet simple message and deliverance that he's given to all of us. And because of that, we have a very real hope for today and tomorrow and for the future. Let's pray. Father heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, kindness, and love. Father, we pray that again that you would cause these things that we've been looking at to become deeply burned into our hearts and mind. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would hold on to them, that we would embrace them, that we would squeeze them, that we would digest them. That, Father, they would become a part of our natural thinking. That, Father, we would think of you in, in every day, in every way. And realize, Lord, that everything that we possess, truly everything, even our ability to, to handle facts and figures is because of your existence and of how you've created us. And Father, we can never, ever thank you enough for all of that. We are grateful. We thank you, Father, for most importantly saving us from ourselves, from our own stupidity, from our own sin, and delivering us, Father, into the coming kingdom. And as always, we do pray for those here, Father, who may not know Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal to them the foolishness of their mindset. We pray, Lord, you help them to become convicted of their separation from you and that they are separated by their sin, by their continuously sinning against you, by living their life as if you do not even exist. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them and they would see it clearly and they would repent and believe in Christ. Father, we ask now that you would bless us or bring our service here to a close. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.